Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast in association with Castelli. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and as ever, I'm joined by Mr. James Spender. Mr. Spender, how are you? How has your last two weeks been? Well, as we've just established, my personal internet woes aside, it is a little bit like being at a music festival in my tower block. Everyone's struggling for signal as they wave their routers in the air uh, in the rain. Other than that, it's been not so bad. Lockdown is over. We've gone back into tier two. We might be looking at tier three. Things do seem kind of similar because what could I not do in lockdown? See people. What can I technically not really do in tier two? See people. So obviously out riding my bike. One thing that has happened, gyms are open for better or worse. I did go to the gym for the first time in nine months yesterday and it was weirdly moving setting my bum down on that ergo concept two rower seat and pulling a few strokes <laughs> for the first time it was nice it was really nice so yeah it's not all bad mate how have you been uh i've been better as you know james uh at, at the weekend i sustained a football injury in the first weekend back from football in a month uh, i had sustained a hematoma in my right thigh uh which saw me spend uh a couple of days in hospital I am now unable to play football for four to six months and I'm unable to do any exercise, including cycling, for over a month. So life's been better. Um, I can't bend my leg and it's bright yellow. So what can we do, James? I assume this means that my best friend in the early parts of 2021 will be the turbo trainer and um, Zwift because I'm not going to be going anywhere fast. And old reruns of EastEnders, because that was the icing on the cake, was hearing the news that Barbara Windsor has died, sadly passed, aged 83. Would you call it? Would you call it now if someone said, you can just, tomorrow's 2021, you've still got your hematoma, but... Yeah, I, I, I would, I would I'd spike the ball in 2020, start January 1st, start fresh. And you and you kill Christmas for everyone. Oh, I would, I would, if it meant that we could go back to normality, to travelling around the world, riding our bikes in groups, watching racing, watching everything happen as normal. Yeah, I'd happily do that. Um, if my leg would be fine, if my leg could bend more than forty-five degrees, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, forty-five. That's not that's that's plenty. You only need like. 135 degrees to 150 degrees flexion and you'll need to go cycling so you're pretty much there well it's it's definitely frustrating at the moment um today's guest let's get on to today's episode a eh, james because it's been quite a good one we spoke to a man called marcus leach now you may not know marcus leach he's not really a household name he's one of the freelance writers that we use quite often at cyclist um and there's a reason we use him james isn't that right we use him because he is just a bit insane. So whenever there's a task or a challenge that is just too much for the editorial team at Cyclist to undertake, we call up Marcus. Um, he has Everested for us. He's gravel Everested. He has um, ridden from Land's End to John O. Oh, John O'Groats to Land's End, but the scenic way, which was I think thirteen days across the hardest climb to, in, in the UK. That's right. Um, he rode across Corsica doing 12,000 metres of climbing and 720 kilometres. He's done the high-altitude mountains of Peru. He travelled from South Africa back to Wales using any transport that wasn't a plane. He's an incredible man, 
with an incredible story and excellent anecdotes about being sort of stalked by hallucinogenic ants in the in the jungle and we thought we'd just get him on to tell some of his stories hey james hey james well yeah let's do it joe he's a good lad uh we should move on but first i really want to tell you a few things that i've been liking and disliking so i'd love you if you played that jingle and i'd love it if you asked me afterwards because it does make me feel important being asked my opinion So, James, let me know something that you're liking. Let me know something that you're disliking in the world of cycling right now. In the world of cycling, well, does eating. Eating counts in the world of cycling. So what I'm particularly liking at the moment is my mum. She has stepped up her baking game, as we've touched upon in the show before. When we had an office, she used to post in cakes, various things to us to keep us going. Gingerbread cyclists. Exactly. Gingerbread cyclists, for one. And she's carried on doing that through lockdown. She's been posting me some cakes and stuff. And I have been down with them as my parents last uh, couple of weeks. And the mince pie machine, the engine has like ground into action for December. And she's currently knocking out about, I think, two dozen mince pies a day. She's up to 132 from about a week ago. That's incredible. We're looking at another 156, I think, at this rate by Christmas. It's a lot. It's incredible numbers, and I'm getting to partake in those. And the flapjacks as well that just come out between the mince pie shifts are... They've, they've been elevated another level. I'm not sure. What, I think she's cooking them for less time. So that's been fantastic. But in a real, very drilled-down cycling way, one thing I hate is cleaning chains. One thing I've really liked is the Pedro's chain-cleaning pig. Uh, kind of, It's pink, looks a bit like a pig. Um, you squish its little pig eyes together, and it pops the top half of the clamshell off so you can get the liquid stuff in but the main thing that makes it genius it's got this little thin wire piggy tail that hooks just inside your jockey wheel so it holds the thing in line with your chain because i don't know when you've done a chain cleaning sesh yourself yeah yeah you're holding the thing and you're turning your cranks and then chain just ships it just drops because yeah and you try your best to make that not happen but what this little tail does is it just holds it automatically in line so that can't happen Suddenly, chain cleaning has gone from something I absolutely hate to something I merely detest. So, what on Pedro's? It's the best chain cleaner I've come across, and trust me, I've tried so many, and I hate them all equally. And this one's kind of okay. So, it's not been too bad. Um, how about you, mate? I mean, obviously, it's been a tough time with the hematoma not being able to cycle. So, is there anything that you've been liking in the last week? Because it sounds like you're having a tough time. Not really, <laughs> not in oh, terms of cycling, because obviously I can't do it. So I haven't really used anything new. I haven't been riding the bike at all. As I said, my rehab process, especially out of the gate, I reckon next month and, and, and in February will be centred around turbo training and Zwift. Um, so I'm sure I'll have plenty of tales to tell you early next year around that. I've used Zwift in the past. I don't mind it. I'd obviously rather be outside. I think everyone would rather be outside. But it's definitely a, a good way of keeping the mind um, activated when training indoors. So, yeah, apart from that, not, not really, James, unfortunately. But you, I, I'm just going to put some words in your mouth just to remind you of there's always some kind of silver lining. And, yes, you've had your, your knee up, your leg up. But you did tell me you've watched some cracking films, one of them being Beyond the Mat, a uh, completely non-cycling-related documentary about WWE and WWF wrestlers which is amazing, we've both seen it. But then what were you watching the other day? And this is how much Joe Robinson loves cycling. 
which edition of which race was it, which you watched pretty much in its entirety? Oh, I watched all three and a half hours on YouTube of the 2004 Paris Roubaix. <laughs> so that's time well spent. It was incredible. It was incredible research as listener. We um, recently interviewed Magnus and Eleanor Backstead. So Magnus Backstead won that edition of the race. Eleanor, his daughter, is a pro cyclist now. Uh, we had them both on a Zoom call quite recently for a future podcast episode. And then before that, I was like, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll re-watch that race because I was 10 years old when it happened, so I don't remember it. So I sat there on a grainy YouTube video watching them race Paru Bay in some... All of them seemed to have bikes that were too... that didn't fit them, I must say. The lax... <laughs> how lax the geometries were. Like, knees were almost hitting chins at points. And I just don't understand how any of them got to the finish because they were all... <laughs> it just didn't make sense to me at all. <laughs> Looking at their bikes and how they were riding, it just... It was incredible. It was a great race. Go rewatch it over Christmas. There was a young Fabian Cancellara, a young Tom Boonen, young Yuzeu's last ever Peru Bay. Uh, he was going for a fourth win. Didn't get it, obviously. Magnus Backstead won it. Roger Hammond finished third, which is the joint best ever finish at Peru Bay by an English-British rider. Inventor of the Hammond organ. Inventor of the Hammond organ. No sort of relation to Richard Hammond of the television, but... It was a good it was a good addition and I think that with myself being sofa sofa bound for the next couple of weeks, or at least the next week with while I'm on crutches, I probably will be watching more classic editions of races and maybe reporting back on them to you, James, and, and telling you if you should which ones you should watch and which ones you shouldn't. Let's do it, we can do a little spin off pod. Races to watch and races to completely miss out. <laughs> but on that note, was there anything before we get onto the interview, anything you didn't like? Well, I don't like, and this is a very difficult word for me to say, I'm going to try and read it, Ceratopogonidae, Ceratopogonidae, and they are, that is the Latin term for the genus of gnat, and you know those clusters of flies that just hang in the middle of a road? I absolutely know what they are. And even when you're wearing sunglasses, you ride through them and they somehow get in your eyes. Yeah, all your mouth, your nose, yeah. And they're there, they're there year round, these little gangs of gnats. And in America, they call them no see because you can't see them because they get in your hair. So I can't, I mean, they've got some, I don't know, some kind of endearing characteristics in that regard, I suppose. In Scotland, they're sort of classed as midges. There are actually, I've done research into this now, so there's over 5,000 different types of gnat. Um, but most of them, when they are congregating like that, do you know what they're doing? They're not hanging out to mug old ladies. They're swarming, they're swarming gentlemen, making themselves visible for males. So what's going on? above your head when you're cycling through is this free-for-all it's a bit like freshers week you've got loads and loads and loads and loads and loads it's a natter orgy it is a natter orgy it's going on above your head um and and they will go above your head because they'll hang you often see them hanging around on top of uh, fence posts or in gullies where what you're actually seeing is them going to a landmark like a fence post which sticks out so when the little Female gnats are flying around like, oh yeah, that looks different to a tree. It's a fence post, which is why they collect over brightly coloured helmets. You know, sometimes you look up on a ride and your mate's sat there at the side of the road. He's got loads of gnats above his head or her head. That's that's why. I don't know. You got to give them that. They are just that's the circle of circle of life. That reminds me. I once, I once out on a ride um, in the summer saw two two bees making love in the air. Really? 
That sounds that sounds really poetic. Yeah, they were there were two bees connected to each other. Nice. And and it turns out apparently bees make mini bees, make baby bees while airborne. The Mile High Bee Club. Yeah, the Mile High Bee Club. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I was incredibly impressed. Did you did you hang around and watch? Did you know this was happening at the time or did you have to look it up afterwards? No, no, I have respect. Yeah, I'm no voyeur, so I just I moved on. You know peeping Joseph. No. Well we'll do another spin off show about mating insects. Because that's that's um that's just a delightful thought, flying around, mating. Hopefully we can all be doing that in twenty twenty one. And and talking of insects, what a lovely segue into our today's guest because Marcus talks to us about seeing giant ants stalking him while on the bike in a jungle. So should we roll into our interview now? Let's roll it. So our next guest is probably the person that you would describe as crazy if you knew him. Uh, he is Marcus Leach. He has been appearing in the pages of Cyclist Magazine most recently for cycling from John O'Groats to Land's End, only the scenic way. But he didn't just cut his teeth cycling around Britain. Way, way back, he was a talented rugby player. An injury forced him to move into journalism, which maybe wasn't the direction he thought life was going to take him and wasn't the direction his parents thought life would take him when he went from Cape Town back to his home in Wales over the course of 20,000 kilometres and through 27 countries. And that was kicking off what has... He's just described to us uh, just now when we we're having a little chat as an addiction. So, Marcus Leach, welcome to the show. Let's start with that. How was that journey from Cape Town uh, back to Wales? I believe that you got um, imprisoned at some point, uh, and there was uh, some some questionable tete-a-tetes with some hyenas. And here I was thinking I was coming on to speak about my cycling, but just to say, first of all, thanks ever so much for, for having me on. Um, and yeah, you aren't the first people to call me crazy. And I think for me, that's more of a compliment these days than, than anything else. Um, the journey back home from Cape Town, I mean, that was a while ago now, but I think it was incredible. It was a real uh, eye opener for me. It was a, one of those definite sort of people talk about life changing experiences and it really I think helped me grow up and become the person I am today and gave me a lot of time to think about where I wanted to go in life and who I was and what was important to me, uh, as well as offering up some pretty incredible experiences, including, well, I wouldn't say that the, the imprisoned section was incredible, but uh, yeah, I did end up uh, spending half a day in prison in Malawi for, for nothing actually I did wrong. It was I wouldn't pay a bribe and it all escalated about my visa extension and oh, wow. I, I knew I was uh, in the local um, prison with about 60 other people quite afraid as you can imagine yeah um, yeah wow so that was a journey that you did uh, I'm assuming that wasn't a bike thing that was kind of on foot and public well, public transport yeah, is that the, the right word you use public uh, transport around the world yeah, the whole premise of the journey was to get from where I was living in Cape Town to where my parents live in Wales without taking a single flight. Um, okay. So that involved uh, trains, boats, uh, hitchhiking, walking, riding camels, donkeys, horses. I bought a bike at one stage um, when I was living in Malawi for a little while. They have these things out there that they're basically bicycle taxis. I don't know if when we were kids, we used to have people on the back of our bikes giving them back keys to places. And they basically have these cool little like devices built over the back wheel where you pay someone a pittance and they'll cycle you to where you want to go. So 
I thought I didn't do it for the money. I just did it to do something and to, to, to be involved in the local community. So I had one converted and it was called the Mzungu Express because I was the local Mzungu white man. And I used to just go into town and if people wanted taking somewhere, they could jump on and I'd pedal them to where they needed to go in the next village and things. So there was a cycling element to it and it was, uh, it was great. And then at the end of it, when I left, I'd, the hostel I was staying at for the three months was a lady who worked there who needed to get her kids to school. And as is the case with a lot of these places, they have to walk a long way to school. So I just gave her the bike and said, look, it's yours you can get your kids to school on it. So I'd like to think that somewhere in Malawi, the Mazungu Express is still running. <laughs> Let's hope so. So when, when was the first expedition by bike? What was your first big cycling endurance event or in, in undertaking? I think the first one was actually when I lived in South Africa and it was kind of on a whim. There's a, there's a great event out there called the Cape Epic. Oh no, not Cape Epic, so the Cape Argus. And it's uh, about 120 kilometer ride all around the the peninsula of uh from cape town all the way down through simon's town um all around the coast and it's i mean it's absolutely beautiful as mm. as far as rides go and i kind of just did it on a whim I did three months sort of training when i say training i rode a bike for three months there was no structure or, or anything to it and i did that but then i didn't cycle again for a long long time for for several years and then the first real uh sort of foray back into the world of cycling came in uh, December 2014 and I just right. spent a year in the gym doing this big body transformation sort of sort of this fat to fit get you know on, you know the six pack like the front cover sort of model look and uh, I did it and I was like there's more to life than just looking good with your top off um, and I was like well, what am I going to do next and I'd always been fascinated by cycling I'd always followed the grand tours I think one of the very first climbs I ever saw on TV was back in sort of the, the 90s, people going up out of duets. And I just thought to myself, well, how difficult can it be? And it just so happened that we were driving through uh, Borg de Oswan down to the south of France for Christmas. And I had my bike with me. And I said to my wife, do you mind if we stop for a day so I can try and cycle up out duets? And I did it in the middle of December. It was December the 10th. And it was the day the first heavy snows came. And... I looked like Donkey Kong on a bike. I was 110 kilos of muscle. Um, I looked ridiculous. Um, I had a lot of odd looks on cars driving up the mountain. My wife was driving behind me and stopping and cheering for me. And I got to the summit after an hour and a half, collapsed into the, to the passenger seat of the car. Um, and once I'd recovered and could, you know, articulate my words to my wife, I just absolutely loved it. I love the fact that I've come from a team sports background where you could play superbly well, but your team could still lose and you were reliant on everyone else. And I suddenly found this outlet where you're either good enough or you're not. You can either get up a mountain or you can't. Mm. And for me, it became not just a physical challenge, but a mental challenge of, well, if I can transform my body and change my physique, what can I do on the bike? You know, I've just got up out to airs, what's next? Mm. And that started... Um, in my head at least, a very logical series of events whereby it was like, well, what's the next challenge? Um, and I think I was very, very naive in what came over the next year and a half. But I think my naivety almost helped me because, I mean, I think the next ride I did was I did the Paris-Roubaix Sportif, mm -hmm. um, not realising that there'd be 52 kilometres of cobblestones. 
that's and we've spoken about that one before me james and i on here and that's for all the mountains you ride that that's a great leveler is that sportif it's still one of the toughest things you can do and it is and you get to the cobbles and the one thing i learned very quickly was if you want to get through the cobbles efficiently you have to go flat out um to glide across the top of them so it became like 52 sprints and some of them are like two kilometers long and the moment you slow down it it's game over on that section Mm. um so i did did the paris roubaix um and it was only afterwards when i realized it was quite a mad thing to do three months after sort of properly getting back into cycling um yeah and then i went and did a few other local rides and found myself doing a ride called the tour de mont blanc which is a 330 kilometer ride with 8,000 meters of climbing and you literally just go round the, the Mont Blanc um, in a loop. <laughs> so that's that's the only sportive cyclist as a brand has failed, actually there's one other but failed to complete. So our deputy, um, as was deputy editor then Stu Bowers, who was himself like back in, back in the day, um, a, a British cycling uh, elite level rider, did mountain biking, super, super fit guy. Yeah, oh, Clearly, incredibly fit. Yeah. yeah, the best cyclist we have on our team. And yeah, he failed. He couldn't do it. He, he got off with uh, 30 kilometers to go. He was just well, like, he, went, he, he just said it was just the most demoralizing. He said he, he basically phoned up his wife and just started crying down the phone, just said, I can't do it, and got in the car. <laughs> well, I remember doing it and I, I got, again, I wasn't in any shape to be going into the mountains. Uh, and, you know, I was still very, very muscle bound from working out, even though I'd stopped going to the gym. Um, I was still a big muscular guy and I got I got 50 kilometers from the finish and I'm amazed that I even got that far and I got to the bottom of the Cormet de Roseland and I thought it's only 50k to go and I just couldn't do it and it, it broke me um, but in that moment I was like well you're either going to keep following this journey or you just you're not and yeah. made me go away and think okay if I'm going to cycle I need to start training like a cyclist and actually taking it seriously which is what I did and I, I went back the year after and successfully completed it in 17 hours and it was incredible I mean it it's it's hard but it is one of the most beautiful days on a bike that you could ever imagine the Cormac was that is stunning isn't it it's a beautiful yeah, side, that, I mean, the, that the area. and especially the side that this ride goes up from you descend down around the lake um, with the little church on the peninsula it's just it's just beautiful um, but I think also I was very fortunate the two times I did it we had very good weather and even though it's in the middle of summer there's been occasions and I was speaking to veterans of the race who have said that you know there's days where it's not stopped raining and I don't think any any amount of willpower can keep you going through that when it's raining that long. <laughs> so speaking of willpower so um, for people who haven't seen the mag so Marcus has just undertaken uh, and again the word crazy is attached to your name when it's mentioned in the office so often <laughs> by our editor Pete undertaken uh, over the summer when lockdowns kind of things were opening up again John O'Groats to Land's End only doing it the scenic route so I think you did what 2,700 kilometers was it something like that yes 2,560 kilometers all in um, and 39,000 meters of climbing across wow. 13 and a half days cycling although it was 15 it was 16 days in total because we had two rest days built in as well and so you started off in scotland and i re I've, I've keenly been following i've been reading reading the pieces as they arrive uh and proofing them and you just describe is it 
day one or day two just like what sounds like the most grueling horrible day just a block headwind all day it was day one <laughs> day one yeah how how do you recover from that you start off this challenge and you're like oh this is going to be quite nice because the whole idea is it's the scenic route isn't it yeah it's taking in the beautiful parts of the uk but as joe pointed out you know the beautiful parts are also the stunningly challenging parts <laughs> and you kick off with a day like that how do you get back on the bike on day two um it was interesting because i in my head I wasn't naive enough to think there would be an easy day, but I, in my head, I thought, okay, day one is an easier day. It's going to be a gentle introduction with about 2,300 meters of climbing, 190 kilometers, as easy as that might sound. Um, and we come out of the car park with John O'Groats, go about a kilometer up the road, turn right. And the moment I turn right, this headwind hit me. Um, and at the time, I was just full of optimism. I was just happy to be on the bike. We'd been through lockdown as I, I was full of the joys of the world. And then I suddenly realised that I'm going across Scotland all day. <laughs> and for as much of the beauty that there is, there does come a time where eventually you just say, I'm, I'm done with this. And I got yeah. to the stage on towards the end, there was one point I calculated that the speed I was going up this gentle incline, <laughs> if I kept going at that average speed, it was going to take me three hours to do the last 20 kilometres. Thankfully, it eased a bit towards the end and it started twisting and turning a bit and I managed to pick up some speed and it was only about an extra hour and a half. But um, it really made me appreciate that every day, in one shape or another is going to be a monumental effort to get through each day so we were, we were saying that we we sent you on the scenic route so that included i believe there was so there was scotland lake district the dales where is it and then it was the peak district yeah and was it north wales cambrian mountains yeah so all through snowdonia national park cambrians brecon beacons uh across the bridge and then and funnily enough, when I got across the bridge, I thought, because I got to the last three days, I thought there's only like, well, not even three days. I thought there's two and a half days to go. And I, I think that was my biggest mistake because one of the hardest days, and I just didn't ever imagine it would be so hard, was the, the penultimate day that was going through Dartmoor. Right. And yeah, that's hilly. Oh yeah. God. It was so close to breaking me. <laughs> it's a strange part of, uh, well, not strange, but like people underestimate um the uh southwest don't they in terms of or the, or the west country in terms of riding and dartmoor is one of those places dartmoor and exmoor it's just like is there any piece of flat road no in, there's this everything is everything is up or just a little bit down then up again <laughs> it's, it's I, I was convinced that the routes planning on Kamut had some sort of weird default that it would purposefully take me over every steep hill that there was because there'd be times where i'd be looking at where I was on on my sort of bike computer and where I was going and all of a sudden it would say you need to turn right here but I was like but the road goes down here and I'd look right and there'd be like a 200 meter stretch of road at 20 percent and sure <laughs> enough I'd go over it go around another corner and you'd almost come back out on the same piece of road and yeah it was it was really tough that day because I thought to myself once I get through the Brecon Beacons it's plain sailing um but it was definitely not <laughs> So then places we like noted on your on your scenic route, which one was where was like the toughest terrain day after day? Because we've we've done a lot of riding in the UK. Um, you know, the Lake District is insanely hard when it when it has to, you know, that's probably some of the hardest riding. Peak district is as well. The Dales, I always found the Dales a little bit easier. 
just a scenic but it, it seemed like it was a bit bit not as sort of brutal where was the real tough stuff that you found um for me i think yorkshire dales actually were up there the dales, oh, really? yorkshire dales again i seem to be going through every little village that had a 25 percent gradient climb and it was one of the worst days of weather and it, it's funny it's one of the pictures i shared on on instagram that people liked and commented the most and it was pouring with rain I was coming around this ridiculously steep corner and people were sort of saying it looks like a sort of a Hovis advert sort of thing um so yeah I found the Yorkshire Dales particularly challenging uh the day in the Lake District was up there it was really up there with 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 the toughest because as, as we were saying before um You've got your climbs in the Lake District that everyone knows. You've got like Honister, you've got Hardknot, you've got Rhinos. People know those, you expect them to be hard. They're advertised as hard and they are hard. But then in between that, you'd just be on a country lane and it would be like half a kilometre at an average of 17%. And it's just considered a normal piece of road. <laughs> and you would go through, I, I would say, without exaggerating, 30 of those within the day in between all of these other climbs to rack up, you know, close to four and a half thousand meters of climbing. And there's no, it's no surprise that, you know, the Fred Witten Challenge up in the lakes is considered probably one of the hardest rides you can do in the UK um, because it takes in all of those climbs, all of those non-climbs that are just brutal uh, and it's unrelenting. There's not a single flat piece of road to, to, to enjoy. That's the other thing about riding in the UK that I don't think people appreciate is when you go to, uh, say, France, like you did with the riding the Grand Tours or the Mont Blanc Challenge, you have seven or seven, 20 kilometres, say, uphill, but it's normally at one percentage, and then you have the equivalent down. But in the UK, it's always 10 minutes at double-digit gradients, and then you're down that within minute. Like, it takes you a minute to descend what you've just done for 10 minutes uphill. So that's such a different task for your body to undertake than what you get in the Alps. And I, I say that's easier doing what you can do in the Alps. Oh, totally. I fully agree with you. And, and especially being a slightly bigger rider at just over 90 kilos, you know, if there's a climb that's 15k long at an average of six, six seven, eight percent, that really suits me because I can settle into a rhythm. I can sort of rely a bit more on my power and sort of measure the effort knowing also that like you say you get to the other side and you've got like the best part of a half an hour 40 minute descent where you yeah. can really recover and freshen up whereas i'm not built for going up double digit gradients um and especially when it's really irregular where it'll be really steep it will shallow off for a little bit really steep again even steeper again and it, it it's hard for me as a big rider to to handle those sorts of gradients but I picked the route ultimately, um, <laughs> so I had no one else to blame but myself. And I had to remind myself that sometimes when I was cursing, going like, "Why am I on this hill?" <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your um? How many actual hours were you in the saddle every day? I averaged. I think ride time was just under eight hours a day average. Right. Okay. Um, so it's, it's kind of like having a a, a nine to five job. <laughs> <laughs> sit on yeah. that saddle and pedal so what, what's your kind of average speed so i averaged over the whole trip i think it was 24 kilometers an hour over the whole really trip. um that's decent yeah because you never have a wheel to sit in your because yeah. that's completely solo as well that's very good going yeah, yeah. so um yeah I was, I was happy with that uh it was 
yeah, it was, and that was the other challenge. Is like you say, there's never, there's never a moment of respite. So although there was one day I had a, a guest, a, a friend, come along and ride with me, and it's the owner of the motorhome company who provided the vehicle, and it was, it was the most amazing day just to be able to talk to someone and take your mind off what's. Uh, I mean, you, you guys are cyclists as well. You, you can fully appreciate, and the people who are listening understand that. There's a big difference mentally between riding with yourself uh, on your own or with someone of how quickly the day can pass when you're just chatting away backwards and forwards. And even going up climbs, you, because your mind's not focused on what you're doing, it doesn't seem as hard. Mm. Um, but every other day was was tough because it's, it's just you. Yeah, yeah, I've always found that your mind can go quite dark when you're on, the, on your own on the bike and you're suffering. I've had some yeah. big days out for like the mag and stuff where because I'm on my own like my head just goes to the worst of you can't do this what are you doing you're just such an idiot but when we have <laughs> so when we're riding with someone or if you're doing like a sportif and there are people around you it's just such a complete it's a game changer I find on the bike it makes you you're able to do stuff that you would probably convince yourself otherwise you couldn't do if you was on your own so the fact that you can do it on your own shows that you've got some sort of mental fortitude that's pretty impressive there, Marcus. Well, well, thank you, first of all. But also just to say, I think that's something I've built up over the course of doing all of these ultra races. And I think the more you challenge yourself on your own, the more you can actually, uh, you can achieve on your own. And it, it sounds really odd, but I mean, I'm the same as everybody, I go through those dark moments. I think sometimes for me, it just takes longer to get there because I am accustomed to riding for such long distances. Um, but that, for me, is half the battle. It's, it's can you conquer the, the mountains of your mind and keep going? Because I was never racing on these days. I mean, there would be times when I was riding segments I'd done in the past where I wanted to see if I could get a PB and, you know, just wanted to push myself and break up the sort of like, the. it wasn't monotonous, but break it up and go, right, for the next 10 minutes, I'm just going to, you know, try and ride as fast as possible. Um, but it wasn't a race. So physically it was tough but i can imagine it'd be a lot lot harder if you were like you know racing every single day as well which is something that you kind of have done though in terms of the racing because you did three we did the, the three grand tours yeah in 63 days within each within themselves um which is something like eleven thousand kilometers and I believe you know there's not even that many professionals that have done that these are people that are paid to go and do it yeah you went and did it on your Todd's just for just for larks. How was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, as my wife always says to me when I come up with these these harebrained ideas, she's like, I'm sure there's easier ways to make money than, <laughs> than going off on your bike doing these things. But no, the three grand tours was uh was incredible. I did it in 2017. Um, and they did all three in the same year, riding one day ahead of the professional Peloton. Um, and that was the gateway <laughs> to doing to the whole world of ultra cycling because I'd never even heard of ultra cycling at that stage and that then opened my eyes to you know there's you've just done a three and a half thousand kilometer race in 21 days and yet there's people who do four thousand kilometer races as a one stage and mm. it sort of really made me think okay what what next but no the three grand tours was was something I think when I look back on now and think wow like that was just insane because at the time i think including professionals riding on teams there was 
65 people in the world who have done all three in the same year. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was it was quite a unique achievement. Yeah. So what of you know Joggle, Grand Tours, uh, Biking Man Corsica, your 20,000 kilometer trip home to Wales. You know all this, this incredible CV of endurance events. What's been your darkest hour? Oh, darkest hour. Um, that's a really good question. Um, there's been a few moments where I've really questioned my sanity and my, yeah, my sanity of what I'm doing. And it's those moments where you're like full on hallucinating. I don't know if you've ever experienced this from riding, but you know, you're sleep deprived. I remember doing a, a race in Taiwan and I rode 560 kilometers without sleeping. I'd been awake for 32 hours. Um, wow. I'd ridden through a jungle and I was full on hallucinating in the daytime. I thought there was these giant ants crawling over the fields trying to attack me. Um, I'd fallen off my bike in the night in the jungle next to a snake and heard this hissing. And I remember just stopping at the side of the road and sitting there just thinking like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? Um, so that was, that was a, a pretty dark moment. Um, but I got through it. I slept for a few hours, having convinced myself I'll get to the next checkpoint and then I'm done, I'm scratching. I slept for two hours, got up and went and rode another 300 kilometers. So it can't have been that bad. <laughs> um, wow. But you, you said before we got on that six day there was that six day stretch from your recent juggle ride that was as amongst the hardest. And now considering that you were hallucinating giant ants in a Taiwanese forest, that must be it must have been a pretty bad six days riding across, you know, the UK. <laughs> well, thankfully there was no giant ants when I was riding through the, the, the lake district. I think what made that six day period so difficult was not necessarily sort of the extremes of not sleeping and, and that side of it, but it was the repetitiveness of knowing that I had a six day period where I did just under 1200 kilometers. So you're averaging 200, 200 K a day, minimum of 3,200 meters climbing a day. And it was just the physical toll on your body uh, that it, it just built up and up and up and you're just trying to get through each day the best you can and yet i always liken it to an ultra racing in that week to like you know it's like your, your mobile phone at the end of you start with 100 percent battery when you start that week and every day you use x amount and no matter how much you sleep and eat and try and recover you never get the battery back to 100 percent. so the next day you're starting at 85 percent and everything's a little bit harder. So by the time you get to day six and every part of you just wants to stay in bed when the alarm goes at half five in the morning, the, the, str the struggle and strain to get up, get dressed, drink a coffee, try and force some food down when you're not really hungry, but you know you've got to eat because otherwise an hour down the road, it's just gonna all you know fall to pieces. It's just mentally hard. And it can be quite soul destroying at times as well. And again, knowing it's just you 
and I think if you're on a team or you're in a race or you're with other people, you think, I'm not the only one in this position. There's other people suffering the same as me. In this case, nobody was suffering as much as me. I, I also find, I, is it, would I be right in assuming that also because of the familiarity of riding in the UK, it also makes it harder? So when you're doing an event in Peru and or Taiwan, every corner you turn, you're seeing something that is just completely new to your mind. So you can kind of remind yourself of that. But when you're riding across, I don't know, Herefordshire, ultimately the first 10K is probably the same as the, the full 200K. And, and there are some amazing parts of the UK, but there's probably that, you know, when you're riding along that dual carriageway, it's not as sort of stimulating to the mind as when you're in a jungle or in the highest mountains in South America where you can really continue to convince yourself, you know, there's a point of this. Yeah, and I think there's this romantic notion that when you do, like, a joggle trip, the scenic route, that every day is going to be spectacular and beautiful and you're going to be constantly wowed by everything you see. But uh, And the reality is, and, and I think I was lulled into a false sense of security by starting in Scotland, which I have to say is probably the most beautiful part of it, the reality is that to link up, no matter how scenic you go, there comes a point where you've got to do some pretty grim miles. And I, there was a stretch of dual carriageway between Irvine and Air, And I was just like, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, it was a wet, cold day. It was a busy dual carriageway. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but then you remind yourself that this is the payoff for being able to do all of the most beautiful things. And and whilst I appreciate people taking a direct route if you're really trying to set a record, I struggle to understand why you'd do that same route if you were doing it over seven or eight days when you could get off some of the busier roads and go and see some of, of what makes the UK so great. And speaking of what makes the UK so great, did you find that the UK drivers were great? Or did you find <laughs> that there are certain pockets where they're less than courteous and other places where they're actually just weirdly, really, really nice. Cause I always think this when I get, you know, one of the things I kind of end up absorbing when I, I go abroad is coming back with the notion of like, Oh yeah, you know, this country's drivers are crazy or this country's drivers are really, really nice. And it always, oh, yeah. it's such a strange culture around driving. And I wonder, does that exist within the UK or are we just all really awful drivers? Cause I, I, on that, I always say you've ridden those before James. I don't know if you have Marcus, but the bus country is incredible. Like I've, I've ridden there quite a bit. I've yet to come across one driver that's even close past me, let alone been annoyed at cyclists. The majority of them sort of wind their windows down and give you a shout to, to continue going. I, and I, and that's so weird, you know, being in London like I am, where I'm contesting with HGVs and, and black cab drivers on a daily basis. So I'm intrigued to know if there's these pockets of the UK that are like these halcyon heavens for cyclists. <laughs> It's interesting because I think the general rule I found was the further <laughs> down the UK I got, the worse the attitude of drivers were coming to a great big crescendo in Cornwall. <laughs> um, but no, but up in there's, only, there's only one road in Cornwall. So yeah. <laughs> everyone's on it. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, Scotland, I found that drivers, apart from one particular driver who got really arsy with me and tried to actually put me in the ditch at one stage. Not really aggressively, but enough to be a noticeable, I'm going to squeeze you off the road here. Apart from that, 
the drivers in Scotland were up there with the best I've experienced. And I always find when I go to Europe um, that drivers are a lot more tolerant of cyclists being on the road. Um, mm. Almost to the extent in Scotland where I would get frustrated at times thinking like, you can easily get past me now. And whilst I appreciate you being so courteous and concerned about me as a cyclist, it's a little bit frustrating that you're just sat behind me. Um, and I could be here on my own with no vehicles around me. So I'd always do my best to wave people past and, and say, look, it's fine. I'm happy for you to come past me. Um, but, you yeah, know, I got to Cornwall and I noticed a big shift in uh, the driving there um, to the extent where I actually had one elderly gentleman who, you know, was elderly, who actually turned around and chased me. Um, with his wife in the car and was hurling expletives at me, telling me I should get off the road. Uh, it's his right of way. I should make more effort to make room for him. And I mean, I was next to the hedge. The only other way I could have got off the road was if I'd have fallen into the hedge. Um, and I remember looking at his wife almost to think like, a little bit of support here would be nice. And she <laughs> sat down her window and joined in what he was saying to me. And at which point I thought, I'm just going to keep cycling. <laughs> oh, wow. But you had, you had, um, you had speaking of wives, you had your wife with you. So this is how it worked, wasn't it? You got a motorhome and you had your, your wife and your uh, kid, kids um, yeah. in it. And she was presumably averaging 24 kilometers an hour as well um, no. <laughs> for, for, 30, for 13 days. How, 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 does she kind of, how do you square that away with your partner? Um, well, I'm very fortunate that I have an incredibly supportive wife and, and, and family, and she's not no stranger to following me around. And she followed me around Spain when we did the Vuelta as my support driver. Um, and that's kind of the other side of my life away from cycling is working within the motorhome industry. And it's really interesting because when we were planning this whole project with Pete and, and the guys at Cyclist, it was before COVID was really an issue. It was over a year ago now. And we planned it staying in, you know, bed and breakfast and hotels. And then when COVID struck, Pete sort of said to me, look, you've got a motorhome. Um, how do you feel about doing it in the motorhome? And obviously I was like, well, I'm fine with that, but that would involve my wife and kids coming. And it was a no brainer. They're like, yeah, let's go. No problem. Oh, wow. um, and I think it's, everyone says to me, oh, it's an amazing achievement. And when we got to the end and I was doing these live videos down at, uh, in Land's End, people said, oh, well done, amazing. And I was like, actually, I had the easier role. All I had to do was cycle every day. You know, I cycle, that's what I do. I train for this, it's my passion. You know, she had a five-year-old and a two-year-old to look after that. She had a seven and a half meter motor home to drive. She had to pack up camp every morning after I'd gone. She had to get the kids in, entertain them, feed them, stop and find me along the way to make sure I had everything I needed and then go ahead and get to the campsite, check in and have everything ready so that when I arrived, food was ready. And, you know, she did that every single day without ever wow. complaining, always with a smile on her face, you know, surprising me at times with like snacks and treats and things that she knew I liked. And it was incredible. And to be able to do it as a family was, was a really special experience. So, and I'm really glad that the kids got to see it from a point of view of seeing the UK, but also, to grow up and to see that you can actually achieve whatever you want in life. You know, you don't have to go down traditional routes. You don't have to limit your beliefs. You can actually go out and do anything you want to do if you've got the mindset and the desire to go and achieve it. So the kids, the kids going to be diehard cyclists, is this what you're saying? You've already started them on that train. Well, do you know, it's funny because I've always been of the opinion that I've never wanted to push anything. The kids can do what they want. 
that whole cliche, as long as your kids are happy, you're happy. And that's always been my um, sort of mantra. And it's just really interesting in the, in the last six months, my little boy who's five um, has gone from his first bike to his next bike, which is a, a proper bike. And all of a sudden he's been asking me, can we go on a night ride? So I'm like, yeah, no problem. So we've gone out at night for half an hour. And he's like asking me to do more and more things. You know, I do a lot of gravel riding now. So he's like, can we go gravel riding this weekend? So we go away in the motorhome to the Cambrian Mountains and we're going off into the gravel trails all up around the reservoirs. And I never have I said to him, you have to do this. But mm. obviously him seeing what I've done, it's really rubbed off on him. And now he wants to do a little overnight bike packing adventure, um, you know, he reads cyclist off roads. I say reads, he looks at all the pictures and sees what's going on. And I mean, it's brilliant. And cycling with him is incredible and I love it. And you don't have to go far. It's just the joy of seeing how happy he is riding his bike on a little gravel road somewhere. If that's what he wants to do. And when he tells my wife about when he grows up, he wants to be three things. And it's like a policeman, a fireman, and an adventure cyclist. So I always have that little proud moment when he says that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So did, did you um, did you take him along on your gravel Everest thing? Because that's something you did recently, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I did two gravel Everest things. <laughs> um, only one of them was sort of an official one for the magazine. I did the first one about a month before that because... Kim, my wife, went away with the kids for the weekend to see her parents. Yeah. And I guess most normal people in a parental free weekend for the first one in two years might just put the TV on and Netflix, order in Domino's. But yeah, you like, sit around in your pants. You don't, you yeah. don't go out and do a, a gravel Everest thing. Come on. <laughs> and I was like, well, they're away. So, oh, no, I'll go and do a gravel Everest thing. And I just did it on my own in the woods. Um, and then I did another one a month later because Stu... Uh, obviously editor at Off Road said to me, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Will you do one for us? <laughs> so yeah, so I've done three Everest things this summer. I did the one that was featured obviously with Cyclist Magazine uh, just before Joggle. So I did that a week before setting off for Joggle. Then I did Joggle and in the however many weeks since then, I've done two two gravel Everest things as well. Wow. So I, mean, I, have to, I have to fess up actually here. The, the, the road Everest thing that you did for Cyclist was yeah. originally my idea uh but i told at the end of the email i said to pete oh and by the way i won't be doing this oh thanks it, but, yeah <laughs> by the, yeah because i did the math and I, I i found a climb around where i live in kent and i'd done the math and i worked out that i'd have to go up it 126 times and i and i i mean not so much the physical stuff mentally we we spoke about this earlier i think the mental having the mental strength to just go up and down the same hill 126 times is just because the, the one you did for us in the, in the mag how many times was that how many repetitions did you do there was it 91 or 92 and that was even harder mentally for me because it wasn't even the original segment i'd picked and we live mm. not far from a climb in wales called the tumble which is uh, fairly well known and there's a little lesser known route up it on the backside, which is really quiet. And I thought this would make beautiful scenery, some great shots. And I found like a two and a half kilometer segment, which would have meant I needed to do 36, 37 repetitions. Um, woke up at midnight, drove up in the motorhome with the photographer following in his van behind me. And uh, we got to the summit and it was 
it was horrendous. I mean, it would have been genuinely unsafe to get out of the vehicle. It was howling wind, torrential rain. And I thought, well, we're in, we're in this now. We're in for penny and for pound. I've got to do this today. Because um, if we don't do it today, it's not happening. And then the only other climb that I could think of was a climb the other way from my house. And it was just over one kilometre. And it was a straight up, straight down climb. No corners. Pretty steep. And it was not ideal for a guy of my size. And I was like, right, well, we'll just go here and we'll do this. So we parked halfway up it in this little uh, car park where there's a little coffee shop and sort of village hall. And yeah, half two in the morning started knowing that I've now got to do 92 ascents of this climb. <laughs> I've got to say, I mean, the joggle, some of the pictures that came, came back from the joggle are superb, they're stunning. This ride just looks so grim. <laughs> I, I did not did not envy you. It just looked horrible. I don't know how you kept going. And I know that feeling when you can see, when you just got a straight road, you can see yeah. the top of it. And, it. and to do that once is is kind of soul destroying, but because never, it never feels like you're getting to the top, but to keep going back and back. And, and the other thing is you're descending as well. Um, and that's got to sort of like really challenge your your brain basically because you can just kind of knuckle in knuckle down and, yeah. and just push your legs and get up a climb and just look at your stem but coming down and also it was wet it was greasy yes you had a bite with disc brakes but I mean were there any disc brake pads left at the end of it yeah. how, how did you well, keep your concentration well it's really interesting and I think it would have been a different conversation had I not done a gravel everesting in the interim but funnily enough the descending um on the road one was actually a mental switch off because it was a dead straight road because I knew it and I'd been up it several times before um and the rain over there was not as bad because there's about 50 kilometers in between the two points so actually it was okay and by the time day broke it dried out and the sun came out so it was actually nice mentally every time I got to the top I could switch off because I knew all I've got to do is just freewheel back to the bottom um pull the brakes turn around and go again um, so I always had this little moment of respite where I could just think about something else. Uh, physically, it was not long enough to give me enough recovery, and I really started to struggle towards the end. Um, conversely, gravel everesting, the descending, the mental energy required yeah. to constantly focus on the road, the trail in front of you, knowing that one lapse in concentration, you clip a rock or you slightly go around a corner and you hit loose gravel and, you know, 60K an hour on a gravel descent, you don't want to be coming off. And equally, you could say, well, just go slower. And then you think, yeah, but you, you're going to double the time you're on the bike if you're going slower. And then the only time you can actually mentally switch off on gravel everesting is if you're off the bike. And then the longer you're off the bike, the longer your day becomes as well. Mm. So I think gravel everesting was like sort of like next level, like Jedi stuff. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. And I remember I finished the one I did for fun. Um, and I remember calling my wife saying, I'm never gravel everesting again. <laughs> <laughs> and the very next day, Stu was emailing me and uh, he said, well, that sounds like it would make a good feature. Do you want, well, if I commission it, would you do it? And in a moment of madness, I said yes. <laughs> um, and obviously ended up doing the second one. And that, that was pretty tough. I, the last four hours of that was a really, you know, coming back to you said about dark places, that was 
a really dark place, some really weird hallucinations, riding into a second night, being on this bleak, remote mountain up in sort of mid Wales. I mean, it was beautiful in the daytime, but at night mm. you just felt so isolated, so alone. Um, and I had some very, very weird hallucinations and was just glad to be finished. So we, I put this to you before, like we came on, but so are you addicted to doing these things? Because it sounds like you are. And, and it's something that when you speak to other people that do ultra events or these crazy tasks, not just on the bike, they say, I'm just, I'm addicted to it. I love, I love it. And it's what sort of wait, it's sort of what gets me going in the morning when you speak to who there's that guy who does the sort of mountain sort of running on the top of like peaks. And it looks like he's always going to fall down the mountain at all times. That's it. Killian Hornet. And then there's the guy who done the free climb, the free solo climb of um, Alex Honnold. Yeah. Alex Honnold. <laughs> and they say it's, they're just addicted. They're addicted to the rush. Are you addicted to the to the, the these events? Yeah, and it was something obviously we did touch on earlier when we spoke. And I think it is an addiction. I wouldn't necessarily. I love the cycling element. Don't get me wrong, but there are moments when you're doing a gravel everything where you just think like why am I doing this? Um, and, you know, you think, oh, I've only got four hours to go and I've been on the bike for 16 hours. And there's never only, you can never put only in front of four hours when it comes to cycling, no matter what the context is. But there's this incredible feeling that you get. And I think maybe some people can relate to it who are listening and maybe some people can't. But imagine you've just finished a sportif. And for some people, that is probably the equivalent of an ultra race for me because it's all relative to what your limits are and what you've pushed yourself to. But imagine that feeling you get when you've finished a, a sportif and you've trained hard for it and that huge euphoria. And imagine that like tenfold, twentyfold when you've been riding for endless hours and days sometimes. And that feeling is just incredible. Um, and it lasts for so much longer. It lasts for two, three days sometimes, and then it slowly fades and the memories of the pain are there and then they slowly fade. And then you think I need my next hit. Um, and then even within the events themselves, there's like points where like you get massive rushes of adrenaline and, um, some are good and some are bad. I mean, I remember, I remember doing the race in Peru last year now the Inca defied and it was the end of day two and I was going it was just going dark and I'd said to myself I'll never ride more than three hours once it's gone dark and there was one more climb to go oh I could stop at a village or there was one more climb I could do and I thought I'll just get over this climb it's a 10k climb descend to the other side it's 20k it's fine then I'll find a hotel and uh, it turned out the climb was horrendous condition like gravel there was a water pipe had burst somewhere because there was sludge on the road and it was just becoming a real ordeal. And I looked at sort of like <laughs> my like altitude, it was 3,800 meters. And then all of a sudden out of the dark, I heard this noise, this like snarling and this barking. And I was like, oh my God, there's dogs. And anyone who's ever ridden in Peru will know that dogs like to chase bikes. Um, and it's not like a little friendly terrier when you're cycling through a village in the Cotswold who just yaps it and wags his tail. These are like pretty horrible things. And I remember just sprinting flat out at 3,800 meters to get rid of these dogs yapping at my feet. And I mean, sprinting at 3,800 meters is just the most ridiculous concept in the world. And I got away from them and I just collapsed on the side of the road and the adrenaline rush was like 
like nothing else. And once the danger had passed, that feeling was like amazing. And I'm not saying it's something I'd like to repeat, but in the moment you can have some incredible experiences and then afterwards that sort of delayed gratification of what you do, yeah, it's, it's, it's highly addictive. So you, sh you should probably go and see uh, a kind of psychologist because in that in the free solo documentary, they study Alex Honnold's brain, don't they? They say basically yeah. he doesn't have part of it. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's missing something that um, or an, e an element of it just doesn't exist in the same way it does for, for me and Joe. And you, I bet you're like Alex, which is kind of like the thing that says don't do it. <laughs> he, he just he's just like, oh, it's fine. Like, it, it's, it's like a kind of it's not even it's more than just not experiencing fear. It's just kind of not not seeing a reason not to do something. I think does it kind of like feel like that to you? Do you or do you ever have to do you ever have to convince yourself to do these things? What and if you do, what are your tricks? I think with Alex, he is very much a unique person, and it's interesting you talk about that because there is actually part of him that has an absence of fear, and I don't think I've got an absence of fear, but I've always felt that fear should be a positive emotion, and it can be something that can actually help you. With, drive you forward towards achieving things as opposed to holding you back from and I think a lot of people are constrained by fear because their fear of failure or what other people might think of not being good enough and it starts from when you're kids you know you put your hand up at school to answer a question and you get it wrong and people laugh at you and you think oh well I'm not going to put my hand up again and that sort of like grows into life and I've always felt like you know actually so what if I don't achieve a goal or if so what if I don't do it at the first time of asking you know I'm going to do it anyway I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to grow so I've always used fear in that sense um but yeah absolutely there's times when I have to convince myself to to keep going I don't ever find myself needing to convince myself to actually sign up for an event because I think as we talked about when you've forgotten about how difficult things are and it's all rosy and life's easy at home you crave or I maybe not everyone does I crave doing these ridiculous things because I'm like right I need to go and do something now so the, there's no convincing in that element um but then during the actual challenges themselves there's definitely moments where it is a battle of your internal dialogue it's um how you manage the little voice in your head determines whether you achieve what you want to do or you don't and again that's something I think you can practice and the only way you can master that little voice is by confronting it as often as possible and that's where training comes in you know you if let's say you've got an hour and a half training session and you've got three blocks of sprints or intervals or anything you know when it gets tough that's when the little voice in your head's telling you you should quit now it hurts and you know but actually that's the moment where you can start to engage with it and actually start to have a, another conversation and say, yeah, well, it's tough, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to push for 10 more seconds, 10 more seconds. And it might sound cliche, but it's all those tiny little steps that when you add them up and add them up, when you then find yourself at 5,000 meters in the proven Andes and you think you can't go on, you draw on all of those experiences and say, well, I got through that and I got through this so I can get through, I know I can endure the hard times and get through them yes this is a little bit harder than ever, anything I've experienced before um but ultimately you know I can do it um and I have all these little weird questions I ask myself and it sounds really silly and one of them started from when I was doing my bodybuilding and I was on this quite strict diet and I wanted to eat chocolate and I wanted to eat ice cream and I was trying to get to like seven percent body fat as ridiculous as that might sound 
And I used to have this question on the fridge and it would just say, what would a champion do? And everyone knows the answer, you know, an elite level Olympian wouldn't open the freezer and eat a tub of Ben and Jerry's. You know, they might have a scoop or a spoonful or they would forgo it in the short term. You know, what would a grand tour winner do? They would make the sacrifice now, knowing that it will give them the ability to achieve their long-term goal. But then equally on the other side of that is the balance that you don't live in that mindset and that state of mind constantly because it's not sustainable. You know, for two, three months of preparing for something, you can be that focus, but then you have to rebalance it. And always for me, it's like, you know, if I think of everything afterwards, there is a week where I just, I can't get enough food. You just cannot stop eating. I did the gravel everything. I burnt 15,000 calories. Wow. wow. Um, and no matter how much food you eat, you can't, it's not enough. I remember I'd eat breakfast and I'd have a big hearty breakfast. I'd drive and drop my little boy off at school and I'd come home and I'd be craving like a whole pizza. And I'd just go and cook a pizza because my body was asking for it. And that's my way of balancing it all out. And in those moments, I'm not stressing out going, oh, I shouldn't be eating this, it's bad for me. It, it's all balance. Um, so I think that's my main question that I think everyone can use is what would a champion do? And also being connected to what you want to do and why are you doing it? Why is it important to you? And I think when you've got that meaning that's more, more than just because I want to go and ride my bike, it's a powerful enough connection to actually say, well, I'm prepared to make this sacrifice right now because the outcome is important enough for me to, to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that definitely, I can subscribe to that. I've never asked myself what would a champion do because I would <laughs> I'm 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 there halfway through a sport team already thinking about like how good a beer is gonna taste and like wondering how quickly I can get to the end. And like you were saying earlier, it's kind of doing like mental arithmetic to kind of keep myself going. Um and then being very depressed at how much longer it's gonna take me based on my current average speed. Um but given all that and given given your sacrifices and given those little conversations with uh the homunculus in your head that kind of uh, the, the doubter what is going to be driving you next where are you going to go with the next next adventure it's interesting because i think before covid i had this great vision of all of these events and things and actually covid's changed my perception of what's possible in terms of just creating my own unique events so there are some organized events that i want to do um some small some big but more than anything it's about just devising my own my own projects and Sounds really weird considering what I've said about Everesting. I'm quite intrigued about a double Everesting, <laughs> which is literally, as it says on the tin, it's just doing Everesting twice. You get a two hour sleep block. You don't have to take it as soon as you finish the first one. But once you've done 8,848 meters, you can sleep for two hours at any stage in intervals in one block between then and the end of the second one. So that's really interesting to me. But the, the ride that's really interesting me, and it's something looking to do next summer, and, again, thanks to having the motorhome, um, is going down to the Pyrenees and doing an Everesting 10K roam. So it's a ride that Everesting has all these different badges that you can do. And they've got one which is called a roam and you have to do 10,000 meters of climbing, a minimum of 400 kilometers riding and uh, a time limit of 36 hours. And I've devised this route in the Pyrenees that's uh, 14,500 metres of climbing, 452 kilometres, and does pretty much every Pyrenean mountain you can imagine. <laughs> so that's on the menu for next year. And then I'm just toying with ideas. I'm signed up to do the Frontier 300, 
um, which is a sort of gravel coast to coast up across Scotland and into England. And then just really seeing seeing where things take me really over the, uh, over the coming months. I'm, I'm in an, a rare down period at the moment where I've actually been told by my coach just to stay off the bike and just let your body and mind recover before starting to train again uh, in the start of December. Right. Yeah, just, um, just get back to the oven ready pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there, was a few, there are some big races out there and events that I'd like to do, um, but also doing some really cool personal projects. I'd love to go off and sort of ride in like Kyrgyzstan and places like that. Um, and Yeah, there's the, is it the Silk Road? Yeah. We've, we've covered it before, the Silk Road race, which is... Mm. It's pretty intense in terms of the riding, but also some of the terrain you ride through. I remember the guy, what's his name? James Hayden, who's won Transcon a few times. He uh, got chased by some sort of horse riding actual bandits um, <laughs> to which he was, I think he was at the end of a 30 kilometer climb, had some bandits come and try and sort of steal his stuff. And he had to just turn around and descend the climb he'd just climbed up to get away from them. Yeah. This is a pretty insane. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's yeah, there's I mean, there are areas in the world where it's probably not the safest to ride, but I think on the whole in those places it's there are definitely sort of safer routes to take and things. But I that whole area of the world, anywhere anywhere where it's really remote really does appeal to me now. Um and getting off the beaten track. And I think I've definitely fallen in love with gravel riding a lot more than the road riding side of things. Um so I mean I'm keen to start sort of putting some ideas together around that. But I'm always open to ideas as well. The way I got into ultra cycling was I, I do public speaking around sort of this mindset side of it on my journey. And I was doing a talk out in Austria and a guy in the audience came up to me afterwards and told me about the race around Austria, which is literally you go around the outskirts of the border and it's, it's non-stop and it, it was a supported ultra race. And my wife always laughs when I go away and do events and things because I'll meet somebody and they'll be like, oh, have you heard of this? And inevitably I haven't. And then I found a new event to do. So if anyone's listening and has got some crazy ideas of things that can be done, by all means, um, contact me and, and let me know because I'm always open to, to receiving ideas of, of what to do. Brilliant. Well, on that note, do get in touch with us and Challenge Marcus. We'll start a website. We'll call it Challenge Marcus. Throw, throw them out there. It doesn't matter what it is. He'll do three times Everest while he eats a dozen Goodfellas pizzas on every descent. Anything, <laughs> anything like that. But yeah, Marcus, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for your undertakings from uh, for the magazine as well. Obviously, you know, it's a job, but at the same time, it's a blooming hard one and not, not everyone can write and ride a bike and also nearly ride themselves into a uh, into a forest full of ants that are crawling <laughs> over their shoulders and, and snakes. So, so yeah, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to Cheers. chat. Thank you very much. Mark. No, thank you guys as well. I've really enjoyed it. And um, again, just hope everyone enjoys following the rest of the joggle journey over the next sort of 10 months or so. So thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll speak again soon one day when I've done something else. Marcus Leach, ladies and gentlemen, the man who's probably... I wouldn't say he's just circumvented the globe a couple of times. He's probably halfway to the moon by now. That's some serious mileage and not mileage that he takes on easily. And again, this issue, we've just put it to bed. We've just sent it to the printers and there's his day four of uh, John O'Groats to Land's End. And that just sounds horrendous. Again, it's just the idea of getting up every day to go and do the same thing again. And the weather 
is looking worse and worse day by day. And yes, the UK is beautiful, but it is also... Also not beautiful. Yeah, when it it rains. And tough. (laughs) As he pointed out. Yeah, and tough, and tough. So I'm just so impressed. I was really inspired um, listening to him. And I was so inspired, I did look online to see how hench he got when he was doing his body transformation. So at one point in time, he also looked like Hugh Jackman being Wolverine. Really? He was massive. Yeah, yeah. He's like 110 kilos, but just like 6% body fat. I have a, the utmost respect for him because he's doing it for the bigger man on the bike. As a as a fellow plus 90k geer, um, I, I believe he's flying the flag to tell us all that cyclists don't have to be all under 70k g and, and stick thin. You know, if, if if Marcus can go out there and do 14 consecutive days across the UK going up 30% gradients, then we all can. We all can, I believe. So I'm a big fan of Marcus for that. Yeah, no. Mind over matter. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I that's that's what I really like about it. So it's more, so this is where I want to get to. This is how I want to do it. And I'll just break it down into chunks that I can do. And that is a kind of, you know, lesson to anyone. And it did get me thinking about that ratchet system of mileage that you get as a cyclist and the first big marker for most people is the century isn't it yeah it's and it's the proper you know it's it's the proper old money british century it's a hundred miles aka 160 kilometers ish so when was the first time you knocked out a hundred miles so the first time I ever did 100 miles, because I'm, you know, I voted to remain in the EU, <laughs> I, I, the, the one that steps out for me is my first 100k, which was just 40. Before, so this was this was the one for you. It was within the first six months of me taking up road cycling. Um, I did it on my, my old Chinelli, which I'm rebuilding. I did not have clipless pedals, so I did it in a set of Adidas running shoes with, you know, the flat pedals that have a little bit of a cage a semi-exposed cage. Yep. Um, I was in a set of 18-pound B-twin bib tights. I had a 10-pound B-twin rain jacket on. I had a set of um, goggles that were actually for car mechanics <laughs> rather than cycling because it was raining so hard. I got off and walked, I think, about three or four times because at that time I was about 18 and a half stone. And the, to culminate it all... In the last 10k, it was about 120k on, on the bike that day. I, I'm an idiot, so I hadn't checked that my rear my rear brake pads had worn, so I didn't really have the ability to stop using my rear brake pads. <laughs> and then halfway through the day, my front brake cable snapped. <laughs> so I then rose for about two hours without the ability to brake. So instead, I used my foot as a brake and walk through the running shoes um, by the end of the day. It was seven hours of hell, and something I never planned. Oh, you know, I, I, I learned so much from that day, but it was horrendous. And where was it? It was just around, like, my local Kent area. It was, like, one of those Evans sportifs where, like, oh, yeah. ten people turn up, and there was points where I was riding for hours and I hadn't seen anyone else on the sportif. <laughs> like, was that the right arrow or was that one of those arrows that points heavy machinery to a building site? Exactly. And I mean, it was it was actually quite good foresight of me to turn up in running shoes because I was walking more than I was riding at points. <laughs> so it was, um, it was horrendous. So it was your first duathlon is what you're really saying. It was. It was more of a it was definitely well. It was a triathlon with the amount of rain. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but what about you, James? When was your first sort of big 
100 mile day or 100 kilometer day that you can remember? So it was riding uh, the Dunwich Dynamo. Oh, yes. Which is basically from Hackney Fields, um, sorry, London Fields in Hackney in London to the coast in uh, Ipswich near or just just beyond Ipswich which is Dunwich yeah and it gets shorter every year because um, the beach is eroding but it's just over 100 miles and I was very green to this and my approach was you can cycle as far as you want provided you keep eating except for sleep that might be a problem but you can just keep going because it's like a petrol in the car you just keep putting fuel like fuel in I just literally that was my that was my um take on it I never really questioned this that you could just eat and go so it's an, it's overnight as well I should say so you ride overnight and it's really pretty sportive in many respects because all these people disappear off it's very shambolic in some respects there's no proper start it's just like you roll up you get there with your mates and then you just go so you've got the steady procession of people thousands of people riding through the night church halls open local pubs stay open bacon sandwiches people stop it's all very friendly and you see these lights disappearing down the street like christmas trees all blinking away red so you're following this procession hoping the person at the front hasn't taken a wrong turn and you end up somewhere to you know uh going up towards birmingham but did all this and my fueling strategy because i didn't have any money was bananas so i had loads and loads of bananas back i took a backpack in my backpack i also had a spare tire I had a couple of tubes, I had a spare chain, I had spare batteries for my pound shop battery, uh, for my pound shop lights, which were three pound shop lights, um, gaffer taped together and then gaffer taped onto my handlebars so I could see where I was going. So I had all this stupid kit and then, I don't know, like 15, 20 bananas maybe? It's a lot of bananas, I was sharing the bananas. Perfect. A lot of potato, yeah, so, so I did this, so I completed it and it was fine. The next day, back in Brighton, which is where I lived, I went cycling, I went mountain biking, and I crashed my mountain bike into a tree and I couldn't get up. I literally couldn't walk, so I had to get paramedics out. The paramedics scrambled up this hill, put me on a stretcher, took me down to the ambulance, put me on oxygen because I was in quite a lot of pain. And when I calmed down a little bit, they do like an ECG. So they put electrodes on you and they check your vitals and stuff. And they were just like, huh, the, uh, the readout's looking a little bit weird here. We'll do that again. Did it again. And they're like, just have to ask you, have you been... Um, are you on are you on cocaine i was like no i've just been out cycling with my mates and they're like oh well you've got an irregular heartbeat that we normally associate with people that are on class a drugs um what else have you been doing eating 20 bananas and then, yeah and one of them was just like have you been eating a lot of bananas and i was like funny you should say that yeah last night i probably ate about 15 and they were like you cannot eat that many bananas you'll hurt you'll get peter andre disease do you remember when he ate too many bananas and ended up in hospital wow he's eating bananas he's eating bananas for his six pack that's how you get a six pack mm. in the 90s he ate a lot of bananas he got an incredible six pack but he was eating 200 bananas a week that's that's at his peak. not good for you surely it's not good for you. And he ended up, ended up in hospital. And the silly thing is, I knew that and I still proceeded to eat 15 bananas in one night. So watch out. Potassium poisoning is a thing. It means your heart doesn't relax properly between beats, which puts a lot of stress on something that is really important to you. And you've only got one heart unless you get a transplant and you can have loads. So that was my first 100 miles. There was a lesson in that. There was a lesson in that. And there's a lesson for the listener as well. Yeah. There's always takeaways. Don't eat 15 bananas in one sitting. No. Otherwise, you'll suffer the same fate as Peter Andre, which is that you'll only have one hit in your whole career. (laughs) And on that bombshell, we shall probably bid you adieu. Unless you want to add anything, Joseph. Uh, No, just the usual. Subscribe, uh, like us, follow us. 
share with any of your cycling friends. We're going to have one last episode before the end of the year that we plan to get out on Christmas Eve. Isn't that right, James? That is right, James. It's going to be a, a comedy special with a, a famous comedian who likes to ride bikes. So listen out for that one. Um, and then we'll join you in the new year with some really good guests. But as for now, I'm going to go and sit back on the sofa, James, and you should probably go get on with some more work. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. What race are you going to watch? Um, I'm going to go and watch the 2006 Brabantia Pill. Esoteric. Yeah. All right. Enjoy. See ya.